this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. The current expected credit losses standard, or CECL, had been hotly debated in banking and accounting circles long before COVID-19 surfaced earlier this year. While the resulting market and economic disruptions caused by the pandemic delayed a full rollout of CECL, many financial institutions that had begun the hard work of incorporating the standard into their models are living through a real-life stress test of CECL's approach to accounting and credit losses. In this episode of the Financial Executive Podcast, we speak with Amnon Levy, Managing Director and Head of Moody Analytics Portfolio and Balance Sheet Research Group, regarding what the current financial crisis reveals about financial credit models and the unintended consequences of CECL. Um, great. So thanks for taking the time, Dr. Levy. Um, we want to talk a little bit today about, um, you know, what banks are going through as far as CECL is concerned and, and how COVID and the pandemic has changed that um, in the, you know, those plans, obviously on the regulatory side, but just on the practical side. So I wanted to start off with, you know, a sort of broad question is I think what issues has the COVID-19 pandemic surfaced when it comes to credit loss models in, and by extension, CECL? Uh, right. So let me maybe um, uh, highlight a few observations. Um, uh, there are, a wide range of challenges um, that financial institutions are facing uh, in understanding the credit risks uh, associated with their portfolios. And those challenges are related to quantifying those risks uh, as well as challenges associated with assessing assessing them from a more uh, fundamental or internal ratings perspective given um, uh, the wide range of uh, effects COVID has had. Uh, and maybe I should start by observing that crises, by their very nature, reveal behavior incongruent to historic patterns. And that creates a wide range of challenges in trying to think through relationships um, uh, that have uh, held in the past and using those relationships to infer how this might play out. Um, uh, now, uh, the challenge uh, associated with uh, the quantitative aspects of assessing credit risk uh, really um, stem from that issue. The fact that uh, organizations use statistical methods to uh, try to infer what the lifetime loss of their credit uh, is uh, expected to be. Um, uh, using uh, historic relationships. Uh, and we know that this crisis is very different from right. how, say, the financial crisis or the tech telecom bust played through. Right. So, um, I mean, can you give a couple examples where, you know, something you haven't measured before or modeled before has come up during this particular crisis? Uh, absolutely. So um, if you look at how um, uh, I, I, let me maybe break that into two different sure. um, two different uh, observations. Uh, one is um, when 
when COVID uh, unfolded in February and March, uh, we saw industries, uh, a wide range of industries getting impacted very negatively, uh, ranging from obviously airlines, aircraft manufacturers, um, uh, uh, hotels, dining restaurants, um, as well as autos, consumer durables, uh, and other segments uh, that have traditionally been hit uh, in a downturn as consumer confidence fell off a cliff. Um, and uh, what's interesting is uh, as, as consumer confidence um, rebounded with the massive stimulus that was uh, stimulus programs that, uh, that were rolled out, uh, we saw that those segments, uh, autos, uh, uh, home furnishings and the like, uh, rebounded uh, uh, to uh, quite, you know, at this point, uh, roughly pre-COVID levels as, you know, home offices started to, 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 to become, um, uh, to become, uh, uh, to, to, to increase in demand and the like. Right. Um, so, so that's kind of one observation, how the different industries were impacted by the direct impact of COVID and then uh, the overall consumer uh, consumer confidence and business confidence uh, rebounding, allowing the indirect industries to, to, to rebound. Mm-hmm. That's kind of one set of observation. Um, and being able to uh, bring in new data to, to try to uh, understand and articulate what's going on. Right. Um, the other aspect is the segmentation. Mm-hmm. Um, at least for us, it had us completely reevaluate how we segment and keep track of, of different industries. Mm. Um, one of the challenges uh, banks have uh, is uh, the use of internal ratings, cornerstone to every bank's credit strategy. Um, internal ratings, though, are uh, are fundamental in nature, they tend to move slowly. Uh, They'll frequently have uh, uh, a number of different uh, ratings, but in earnest only say three of those categories are populated. Uh, And uh, and here I'm using three as an example, might be a few more, but not many. And trying to link those internal ratings with macroeconomic variables for loss projections using historical patterns, the statistical relationships are quite challenging uh, to, to, to tease out and doesn't lend itself to granular, uh, to, to differentiate across segments in a particularly granular manner. And, and that's been something that organizations have been challenged as they realize that uh, if they have say seven segments for the purpose of their statistical uh, loss forecasts, you're not going to recognize that dine-in restaurants are being impacted very differently than takeout restaurants or fast food, right? Right. Right. Or coffee shops. Um, let alone, uh, you know, lumping them together with downtown hotels, roadside hotels, uh, leisure and recreation and so forth in terms of how, how one might imagine segmenting that. So, so we actually went in and went through a very detailed assessment of which, um, you know, how did, how should we segment these different, 
uh, industries, which ones are obviously being impacted by COVID's um, uh, direct uh, 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 the impact on industries that say rely on the physical proximity of their customers, mm -hmm. uh, like cruise ships, mm -hmm. uh, 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 airlines, and so forth. So that, that's the other primary issue that that we really, really spent uh, a fair bit of time trying to trying to uh, uh, describe and, and, and understand. So, I mean, the, taking that point into consideration, I mean. I mean, how, let me put it this way. Do you think banks are, are seeing the same thing you are and implementing changes along these, you know, changes of segmentation or is that, is that something you really can't do on the fly that, that it's, you know, and what does that mean for loan loss estimations going, going forward during this period? Right. So that, that's, uh, that's a, that you hit the, the real issue here, mm. which is uh, recognizing these challenges uh, on the quantitative side, recognizing that uh, if you look at, say, uh, uh, the credit um, uh, assessment from a uh, credit analyst or, or loan officer's perspective, uh, and the challenges you have there in an environment that's quickly changing and having, say, a level uh, setting across the different analysts to ensure that you're being consistent with how you're assessing credit across your asset classes, across the organization. Again, when things are changing very quickly, as as they did in um, uh, March and April, and even today, things are pretty dynamic. Right. Um, how how are you know how are organizations managing that? And um, another relevant question is how should they or what should they learn out of this experience right. so that they're better prepared for the future ultimately? Right? Because uh, this isn't the last time something like this is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so. Uh, let me maybe share some. Uh, uh, so we've been working with organizations since uh, since February, uh, um, uh, and this is uh, you know we work with a, a wide range of uh, organizations globally. Um, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, small, medium-sized banks, very large uh, global banks, um, or uh, insurance companies, mm. and. Uh, the insurance segment, interestingly, because of their reliance on securities markets, uh, was able to get a handle on things more quickly when it came to their uh, corporate book. Mm -hmm. Commercial real estate is still quite challenging because they don't have as much of a market, uh, they, they, they can't rely as much on market signals there. Right. Uh, and, and some of the challenges associated with understanding the true state of credit, given um, the forbearance, uh, deferments uh, associated with um, uh, uh, some of the real estate investments and, uh, and other assets. Um, uh, so, so their problem was a little bit different or is different from the banking side, uh, especially once you start uh, looking at um, lending to uh, uh, 
companies uh, that don't issue uh, securities, whether equity or, or, or credit, in terms of understanding the state of, of, of affairs. Um, some organizations approach this completely from a fundamental perspective where they centralized their, um, their analysts uh, and right. went through a, a massive uh, initiative to uh, collect regular updates uh, on uh, uh, the uh, liquidity positions and the, uh, the, the, the business uh, robustness uh, assessments um, uh, to infer uh, how um, their credit books uh, would, um, would play out, recognizing that many of their quantitative models uh, we're not producing numbers that were in line with the expected uh, yeah. environment. Um, and then that was coupled with uh, 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 a number of overlays that were by and large qualitative in nature. Uh, they still had to uh, report uh, numbers uh, that were coming out of their modeling frameworks, uh, auditors required uh, that generally right. as did uh, regulators, uh, but there was a heavy dose of qualitative overlay. Hmm. Um, and that, that, that creates a number of challenges that we could get into in a moment. Um, other organizations um, uh, did react more quickly right. uh, trying to develop quantitative benchmarks to assess um, their, uh, um, the, their, their expected future credit losses. Um, and those institutions by and large, I found to really focus predominantly at the top of the house loss numbers without spending too much efforts trying to get into the more granular right. um, uh, nature of their, uh, uh, you know, the cross-sectional variation losses in the portfolio. Uh, and and I, could, I could understand that, you, you know, you want to get a sense, okay, mm-hmm. how bad is this for the organization as a whole for liquidity and the like? Um, uh, but it does leave something to be desired as far as uh, making sure that the Cecil numbers uh, in the very end of the day, uh, address the issue that they were designed for, namely added transparency. Right. Uh, after all, Cecil was rolled out to address uh, the too little, too late problem, the lack of transparency that became evident during the financial crisis. Right. And uh, you know, co- you know, coming at this as a, uh, a self-respecting. Uh, a quantitative uh, researcher, uh, uh, you know, I, I have to say, if a model isn't able to provide you with some level of insights uh, during uh, a, a downturn, uh, I have to question uh, the true value that it provides. Right. In other words, if, if, if it's only useful when things are, are, are boring, uh, <laughs> it's not very useful. <laughs> uh, and 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 what one you know what one of the things that struck me as I was you know really kind of I, I had we had our obviously uh, 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 you know our 
um, eight months of all hands on, uh, right, right. Uh, uh, constantly reviewing, assessing, seeing how things are playing out. And I, I, I had these moments where I continually, you know, I, t- I, t- I took pause and reminded myself ultimately, what is it that we're looking to achieve here with CISOL? Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, we're trying to make sure the market stakeholders um, have uh, insights on what sorts of losses um, uh, banks uh, and, and insurance companies uh, mm-hmm. should expect. Right. And, um, uh, you know, it, it actually, I, I was going through a paper that we had published a couple of, like, I think it was like two years ago now, uh, that explored um, how uh, allowance and earnings volatility uh, relate with share price performance for banks. Mm-hmm. And I, I was reminded that, you know, there's, there's a good reason uh, uh, we, we care about uh, allowance and, and uh, uh, dynamics of, uh, of allowance and, and earnings. And, and, and the good reason is, you know, the market and stakeholders want transparency. Right. They want to make sure that the organization understands what's under the hood. Mm-hmm. And in, in that paper, uh, we found some very interesting and perhaps, you know, when, you, when I say it, it's not that surprising, but to be able to quantify it is something else, which is banks that have a higher level of allowance volatility and a higher level of earnings volatility are valued at a discount uh, uh, compared to their peers controlling for all the other natural covariates like systematic risk exposure and the like. Um, And um, uh, if you think about what implications that has for, for, uh, for today, um, uh, it has profound implications. It has implications highlighting that banks that understand their positions that are surprising the market with large swings in allowance mm-hmm. as they understand that they have some credit exposures or hidden concentrations that they didn't understand, or it turns out that they don't, those banks are not going to be viewed as, um, as valuable. Right. They're not being clearly managed uh, in a way that helps the market understand what's going on. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's critical here. Yeah. Now, as, as far as CISOL specifically is concerned, it's interesting when we wrote that paper, we actually wrote it, um, uh, in conjunction with an observation that CISOL by its very nature has banks set aside allowance in a more reactive manner. Uh, it's intended to address the too little, too late uh, problem where banks did not set aside sufficient allowance when the uh, mortgage market deteriorated and didn't pull out of that market 
early enough. They just kept, you know, uh, investing, you know, good money after bad effectively. Right. Um, and what Cecil in effect also does is, uh, it, it increases because it's more reactive. It increases the, uh, the movement and allowance as the environment deteriorates and as it improves. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that while the market is going to re- uh, uh, appreciate that CISO is going to have more volatile allowance, banks have to be managed to that now as well. They have to take those numbers that are going to be more volatile and manage their books in a way that diversifies that volatility or uh, diversifies their portfolio so it doesn't exhibit that volatility. And they need to be able to measure these dynamics more accurately in order to be able to um, to do that effectively. Does, does that make sense? It does, but I guess my question is, are banks listening to those signals or are they, do you expect that they will react to those signals that you describe in a way that um, I guess will change their um, risk taking. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And uh, I had um, an interesting, another set of observations working with one financial institution in particular which, which I thought was interesting. This is a, a fairly large financial institution, multinational footprint, um, especially in those situations, you could imagine the, the analysts, um, uh, it's particularly difficult to level set the analysts' um, credit assessments uh, when things are changing quickly, right? right? In particular, when you have, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've uh, maybe alluded to this, but I didn't explicitly describe. We, we developed this modeling framework that provides you with an overlay so that you get a much more institution, a much more cross granular cross sectional um, uh, benchmark of their credit portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, uh, we were working with fairly senior. Uh, level uh, folks on on the risk side and, and the finance side, uh, as the models were being used for um, uh, uh, for for Cecil and IFRS nine and CCAR and the like, and uh, what, one observation is that the the analysts, uh, by and large, are focused entirely on what they're focused on. They generally don't care what the Cecil number is, right? right. That's not right. They're they're focused on the business plan and and uh, uh, the likelihood of a particular counterparty paying off. They don't necessarily care what the allowance is or, or what the risk concentrations are, unless they have to care, right? And that's effectively what the. Um, uh, the risk function does, and that's what the regulator is doing. The regulator forces a risk function to impose some level of consistency on the organization and be able to report something and articulate it in a consistent way so that they understand what's going on and make sure the organization is being effectively managed. Um, right. Now, now, if 
you know, come back to your question, um, uh, will organizations be managed to, to these statistics? Uh, uh, the answer is um, they sort of have to because of that. So you have their CECL models, uh, you have their CCAR models and the like. Uh, the, uh, uh, the executives uh, uh, who ultimately care about the earnings and the allowance volatility, they're seeing these surprises coming up uh, and they know the market is going to um, discount that sort of movement. Right. In other words, if, if, if they don't manage to it, either the regulator is going to come down on them or the market is. Right. And uh, effectively what Cecil does is, at least for publicly traded banks, is it imposes that, that market oversight in a more... Uh, in, in a more more quantitative way because of the CECL standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had you had that under incurred loss as well. I, I don't mean to suggest otherwise, but here it's much more uh, explicit, if you would, in terms of the quantitative modeling. So I'm going to ask you a, a question that's, you know, the big question in, in my mind anyway is, Given all that you said and given what's happened with the pandemic and what how banks reacted within their models, did Cecil do what you expected? And if if not, or even if it did, what needs to change or what what could be modified about Cecil? Right. Um, okay, so there, there's another interesting dynamic here that I'll just observe mm. that I wanted to introduce to the discussion before I directly answer your question. Sure. Um, the pandemic was fundamentally different than previous crises in that it wasn't a result of uh, greedy, uh, you know, greed driving, uh, poor investment decisions, right. Uh, you know, uh, in, investing in, uh, assets that an organization has no business investing in that. That's not what happened here. And because of that, uh, and to their credit regulators, uh, and you know, basically the fed and, and the treasury and, and, uh, uh, the U.S. government uh, bolstered financial markets and incented banks to support their customers as much as they could, right. or to the extent uh, practical. Um, and so, uh, and, and they did so recognizing some of the challenges that I've brought up. Uh, they, there were a wide range of different, um, uh, um, different, uh, uh, guidelines to ensure, uh, banks weren't overly punitive with their, uh, uh, provisioning, mm-hmm. uh, encouraging them, encouraging them to take a more through the cycle view on how this is going to play out. Right. Uh, in effect, dampening some of the effects that 
uh, I described earlier in terms of uh, Cecil being more reactive, uh, ensuring that the capital positions were were um, uh, were, were were within reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, so that was, a, that was different from what we saw with the financial crisis, for example. Right. Right. Uh, now that aside, uh, did Cecil, uh, uh, achieve the desired results? Um, it did in the following way, um, larger, uh, larger banks that have established quantitative, uh, teams, um, were very much uh, um, knee deep in understanding, and are continue to be very much knee deep in understanding uh, the extent of uh, what the credit losses might be. Mm-hmm. Um, they are actively, uh, you know, just being heavily involved with a number of institutions. They're actively looking at different market signals um, and alternative data to help them, uh, often with our guidance. Uh, understand uh, the state of affairs. It's a, obviously a very complicated problem. Right. Uh, it's right. It, none of us really have gone through a pandemic, thank, mm. thankfully. <laughs> uh, but but uh, uh, it 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 did it does force the organization to allocate resources to not limit its assessment of the environment through. Uh, you know, fundamental analysis right. and aggregate it up, but also take uh, a more, um, uh, 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 this, you know, take a completely different lens to the problem. Right, right. Um, so, so, so in that regard, uh, uh, it was successful. I, know, I, I should say I'm a big fan of Cecil for that mm. matter. Mm. Uh, now, I don't, I, it's probably not, uh, you know, if, if you ask Basby, their their focus is entirely on accounting transparency. When I right. think about the problem, I probably think about it in a much broader sense right, in terms right. of well, what what's you know what what are the unintended consequences? Are they good? Are they bad? Uh, I, I would say there are a lot of unintended good consequences in terms of the incentive Cecil creates. Right. Uh, so in that regard, uh, I, I was I was very happy when when the Cecil rules came out. Um, where did it fail? I, I would say it, it, it failed with some of the statistical uh, challenges I described earlier. Right. Um, and, uh, and that's okay. Um, uh, because I think that we're setting ourselves up for, we meaning the industry, the community, setting ourselves up to learn from that failure. Yes. Um, and, and learn also that we need to have platforms uh, that can be adapted quickly to help us navigate uh, challenges, emerging risks on an ongoing basis. And, that, and that's, that's where, where I'm, I'm, I'm rather optimistic in terms of, in terms of how things are likely going to play out. What's interesting because of the, you know, you could say unfortunate timing of when Cecil rolled out right. and um, the, pan- <laughs> the pandemic is pretty, pretty, uh, I mean, you can't make this up, right? It's, <laughs> it's like, with, <laughs> it's just pretty spectacular right. in terms of the timing. Uh, it, it's, um, uh, it, 
it, it, it's forced uh, a sort of reckoning that uh, um, the organizations uh, need to have uh, more nimble systems in place because often these models take a very long time to update and um, especially given the nature and cultural structure of the banking industry being slow moving and extremely conservative, uh, uh, having overly rigid systems uh, is, you know, it's pretty clear that, that that needs to be something that is thought through to allow for um, uh, navigating, uh, navigating these sorts of risks and brought into, you know, obviously the, uh, the CISO quantitative uh, frameworks, but also more broadly disseminated throughout the organization. Um, uh, one thing that I, I've also very much um, been vocal about uh, is uh, caution over designing um, uh, uh, systems that are um, are, are too streamlined. Um, so that they only answer one question. Right. Uh, and if your system could only answer the question, what will your credit losses look like if GDP goes down by X? That system is only going to be able to answer that question, uh, but it's not going to be able to likely answer uh, a lot of very relevant right. questions when, when, when things change. Great. I want to thank you for that. Those are my questions. I really want to appreciate, I really appreciate really insightful stuff. Thank you very much. Oh, absolutely. Uh, nice to meet you.